you know, a lot of times when we come to this country, you know, we think we're in search of community. We're searching for it. We try and create it in small pockets. I grew up in a boiler room in a three-bedroom house. We don't think we have much to give to the world. I think in that moment, you realize that no matter how little you have to give, anybody can actually create community. Damn. It's not for us to search for it. It's for us to create it. I think that was, that was a big moment for me. And I always pull it back to high school. I know it's a funny high school story, and, you know, but, but it, it was a shift for me because it's all up to us to create community. Welcome to the It's Not That Deep podcast. I'm your host, Deepak Sharma, and this podcast aims to connect different communities under the premise that we're all fundamentally the same. We tend to overcomplicate most things in life. This podcast is really just a conversation, and it's not that deep. This week's guest is Fahad Al-Hatab. It's hard to introduce this guy because he's involved in a long list of meaningful ventures, but I'll try my best. Fahad is first and foremost a community builder. From a young age, he's started and been involved in camps and initiatives for underprivileged children that have raised over $1.2 million for local charities in Ottawa. He's also an entrepreneur who founded Unicorn Labs. His role as a millennial workplace expert allows him to teach new managers how to lead multi-generational teams. He specializes in transformative leadership and team dynamic training for high-growth startups. Fahad is also a professional keynote speaker who's inspired over 50,000 people to become unicorn leaders who develop unstoppable teams that attract and retain top talent. He's also the founder of a startup incubator called Hatch that launches, trains, and connects student entrepreneurs with investors. Finally, Fahad is an education reformist that trains university educators on how to include experiential learning and leadership development in their courses. Now, these are just some of the many hats Fahad wears in his roller coaster of an entrepreneurial journey. Some of his accomplishments include winning the United Way's Community Builder Award, being named as one of Canada's top 20 under 20 as well as raising six figures for a mobile technology company he founded but later discontinued. Today's podcast is sponsored by Podpack Solutions. Look, when I started a podcast, I had no idea how much time and effort goes into editing and putting out content every week. This doesn't stop me from doing it, but it can be a roadblock for many busy people and businesses to get started with their own podcast. Podpack Solutions will help you create, launch, produce, edit, distribute, and grow a podcast for your brand or business. Our mission is to take the pain out of podcasting, so you just have to hit record. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. It's the first time I've done a remote episode, and we'll have to be doing that for the foreseeable future until the virus kind of uh, gets sorted out. Uh, just remember, it's not that deep, and please enjoy. Thank you. Fahad, welcome to the It's Not That Deep podcast, brother. Thanks for having me, man. Really excited here. Man, I'm so pumped to have you here. Um, you know, this is my first remote podcast, so it's a very I'm very honored to have you as as my first remote <laughs> guest. If we had well, that, I'm honored. <laughs> I'm honored to be trusted to 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 be able to, you know, actually have the the technology to be able to make this work remotely. I was a little concerned. I was like, oh, what if my internet connection isn't good enough? You know, <laughs> yo, honestly, that's my biggest concern too. Always, and you never know, like leaving it in the hands of technology, what could happen. But let me let me introduce you because this is probably going to be the hardest part of the podcast for me because I don't know where to start, man. You're you're a million things. You're 
a millennial <laughs> workplace expert, a coach, uh, an established keynote speaker, an entrepreneur, community builder, education reformist, <laughs> philanthropist, and the list goes on, man. You fire me up. I don't know how you find enough hours in the day to do all the things you do, but we got you here and, uh, and that's also blew my mind that we could schedule you so quick. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. You're too kind. You're too kind. I'll tell you all about how we make that all work together because it all actually, it all falls in together at some point, which is the beauty of it, right? I'm sure there is some harmony there, man. But like, you know, seriously, I, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. You're, you're a very inspirational individual. You enact change for thousands of people, you know, not only in just Thank the you. Ottawa area, but like you make a, you make a real impact and you have some accolades to speak for that, you know, we could list them. We could, we could sit here for hours. <laughs> and just like listen, you know canada's 20 under 20 uh 2019 <laughs> rising speaker award united way uh, community builder award but like i genuinely want to start from the beginning let's talk about the humble beginnings for fahad what is what what like what's the story tell me the story from the very beginning man all right let's 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 i guess take the take the story back so i think um you know, I think as, as, as many new immigrants to Canada, the story will be kind of similar and, and they'll find the themes they'll find where their story interacts. So my family is a mixed family. So we, I, I was born in Kuwait. My brothers and sisters were all born in Kuwait. Um, my, my parents were born in Kuwait. Uh, their entire lives, they lived there. Um, but in 1990, 1991, 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait. And uh, so if you studied world history, studied Middle Eastern history, we were there during that invasion. And that invasion was an inflection point in my family's history. It was a point where things forever changed. Um, and not always because of the war itself and because of the invasion. Luckily, we were safe from any physical harm. Um, but my grandfather and grandmother from both paternal and maternal side were actually Iraqi. Uh, and that made us Iraqi citizens living in Kuwait. See, in Kuwait, you don't just get citizenship for you know being in the country your entire life and the beautiful blessings that we have here in Canada. Um, so after the war, Kuwait Parliament made an announcement and made a policy that any Iraqi living in Kuwait was no longer welcome. And that inflection point, that point right there, was forever to change the tra trajectory of my family history. Uh, it, was, it was weird. It was a really weird feeling. And I, I think it was even weirder for my parents. They, I mean, my father, I think, was like 42, 43. Now, at the time, and can you imagine the only place you ever called home just said, you're no longer welcome here. He didn't know any other place. There wasn't another place. It wasn't like he traveled from one place to another. No, no, he only knew Kuwait. And we only knew Kuwait. It was the place we called home. It was the place that we all knew. Um, and, and even though our papers said differently. And so that that trajectory took us to find a new community, find a new place to call home, find a new place that we could belong to. And, you know, we traveled a few different areas in the Middle East, we spent some time in Saudi Arabia, spent some time in Pakistan, spent some time in different areas just to try and find where it could be best. And about 1996, my uncle, my, on my mother's side, um, had called my dad and he had made it to Canada and he called and he said, uh, you know, I really think you guys should come up here, uh, but just be warned, it's pretty darn cold. <laughs> um, and, and you know as, as the story goes in 19, 1998 on October 30th we landed in Canada um, we landed in Canada and it was cold like it was <laughs> it was cold we landed and I got a big family I got I got three sisters and two brothers so we're six kids and my two parents my parents didn't speak a lick of English 
So we landed in, in, in Canada and uh, we had this tiny little house in Vanier in Ottawa. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a three bedroom house that, uh, we kind of, eight of us were going to have to fit in, right? The situation, my, my father spent the majority of life savings between 1991 and 98, when we finally arrived to Canada, moving from place to place, jobs were hard to get. So when we landed, we came on October 30th and we unpacked our stuff in our little house. And I remember just being super excited and we came in in the evening. So we kind of just went to bed that next day we unpacked our stuff and, and me and my brother were like, yo, we should really like check out the neighborhood. You know, we should really check it out. So at about 4 p.m. on October 31st, me and my siblings all put our little bags on and we went around the neighborhood to check it out. And all we saw were little ghosts and goblins running around, <laughs> knocking on people's doors. It was Halloween and we had absolutely no idea, absolutely no idea what Halloween was. I mean, I turned to my brother and I was like, oh my God, what country is this? Like, where are we? Um, and uh, my mother turned to my father and was like, what devil worship is this? Like, what's, you know, what's, what's going on? And so we, we came to Canada and, and, and you know, that was, our, that was our journey here and, and we came to Vanier in, in, in Ottawa. And, you know, Vanier in the 90s and Vanier in, in the early 2000s was quite a rough neighborhood and today continues to struggle, but it has the highest density between Vanier and Lower Town, very close to each other. It has the highest density of low-income housing in, in Ottawa. And the reality of our situation was that we were socioeconomically low and we did not have a lot. And my father and mother struggled with finding work and uh, finding, you know, finding their way through this world, through this new reality in a different lens with a different language. And I always explain our, our younger days as being translators, you know, the translators between my parents and, and this world, whether it was translating language or it was translating culture, it was translating society. Um, and, and, you know, our humble beginnings are our, our difficult beginnings were in that Vanier house. It was, you know, we joked, it was a three bedroom house and there was eight of us. My father turned the boiler room into a bedroom for my older brother. <laughs> he hid the boiler with like a little curtain and he put the TV and the PS2 and made it the hypest room in the whole house. And we all hung out there. We used to use the central vacuum holes. You could yell inside of them and you'd have like a, uh, a, a, a PA system for the house. Like the entire house could hear. We started doing morning announcements and, and using the, the central vacuum. Home. But, you know, we left Kuwait in search of community and we found community within our own, within our own family. Mm. We created community within our own house. We were a bit isolated for the number first few years in, 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 in a new world. But it was, you know, my, my dad would call us a team. We, we were six, right? Six kids. And we created such a tight-knit community, tight-knit culture. And I, I would say my the entire journey from that point and into everything else that I've done was this search for community, was this building community, was this creating a place where people feel like they can belong. Because that was my essence of, of, of what we felt was taken away from us. Right. So a lot of volatility growing up searching for that community and then finding it almost within your own family as a pocket mm -hmm. within this completely new society. And then I'm, and I, I, you know, if you, I'm making a bit of an assumption here, but it's, it's never fully, there's never like, you never fully immerse into the culture. Your mm -hmm. family is still going to carry things with them that are part of their culture to this yeah. day. 
you know, there are still things you might have to, I mean, as far as they probably come, there are still things you probably have to explain to them on a day to day. No, mom, we don't do that. Like, <laughs> oh, dad, oh my God. Like, no, man, a barbecue, like, is, like you know, all, all these kinds of things. Right. So, yeah. You know, that's, that's really, I, I always say, you know, t- today we do work with uh, developing culture within teams. And I, when I always explain culture, I would say, I would say culture are the unwritten rules and you know about unwritten rules. If you ever came to a new country and I, I was talking a story of, I took my, I took my dad to, to Washington uh, last summer, just to get, you know, kind of. Uh, he's never seen anyone. It's kind of go at a little vacation, and we're at a shawarma store. And you know, of course, we find the only shawarma store in Washington, right? And and we're ordering food, and he he wants the turnip, so he like points at it through the window, like glass, right? And the lady goes and grabs like the wrong thing. He's like, no, 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 not those. And he reaches over the glass and says, that one right there, right? And and you know, you and I, I'm like, oh my, no, Dad, you can't do that. You can't reach over the glass. Stop. <laughs> But, you know, he's like, well, she didn't know which one. So I was just showing her. And he's not wrong. But they're just little cultural subtleties, you know, yeah, that, that, subtleties. that sometimes are, you know, uh, you, you make a good point. I always, I always say this. I think the greatest gift that any immigrant has is that you sit in between two objective truths and you realize that the majority of life is relative truths. Ooh, power. You sit in between the, the truth that your parents hold and the culture that you have in, 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 in the society that you grew up in, and they believe that objective truth to be completely true. And then you show up to the society and they have this complete different objective truth. And you realize you're both not objective. And you get to sit right in the middle of it. And you get to see both truths and create your own and realize that you can design the truth. You can design the relative truth you want. I think it's a mm. gift that we're all given. That's very powerful right there, man. And and it it applies to so much more than just culture. It applies mm. to almost everything in life. You know, we love to have things separated in our in our minds as binary, as black yes. or white. And yes. it often exists between the lines in gray areas for everything. Yes. And we can mm-hmm. talk about that alone here for hours of just the different examples of how usually the solution or the best answer to something is in between those truths. Yes. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. much true. Very much true. So then walk me through then, you know, jump fast forward a little bit. Then now, you know, you're, you're within the Ottawa culture of Canada very much now, um, you know, being raised in the school system and whatnot. Talk to me about what, what it was like being a young Fahad. And then like, you know, what were some of the things you wanted to do back then? Yeah, 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 definitely. So I, you know, I, 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 you know, after finding community with our with our family, I'd say the next place we really found community was we went to the Boys and Girls Clubs of Ottawa, you know, a community center where we played sports. And Young Fahad was a little bit of a sports junkie. He just enjoyed playing basketball, played volleyball. Just got really into that. And you know, the story that I tell often is uh, I remember that that really becomes a pivotal point in my life was I was in grade 12. I went to Colonel by high school in grade 12. I remember sitting down for lunch and uh, with a couple buddies and, and I get a call from one of my good friends, my good friend, Muhammad. And I know we all have seven friends named Muhammad, you know, but my good friend named Muhammad, like he gave me a call at grade 12 high school. And he said, Fahad, um, do you remember the challenge our principal gave us? And I was a bit confused at the time because Mo and I didn't actually go to the same school. We went to different high schools. I was like, man, what are you talking about? He's like, no, nah, you remember elementary school? You remember the challenge our principal gave us? I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember elementary school. He's like, remember the challenge she gave it to us during graduation? 
and it recalled a memory for me. It recalled my grade eight graduation. And I remember being pulled aside from my principal. And I went to York Street Public School, elementary school here in Lower Town, Ottawa. And it was a tough school. I mean, 350 kids, but a school with a lot of difficulty social economically and difficult learning and, and so on and so forth. And my principal had pulled me aside during that graduation, me and my friend. And she had said, guys, I want to, sh- you know, I'm, I'm proud of you for how well you've done. I'm proud of you how well you've in- like done in this, in this school took initiative, taking leadership roles, all this stuff. And I was, I was part of like the recycling club. I was part of like the little student council thing, you know, all the little things we were doing. It was fun. It was a small school, right? I was playing sports. She said, but I want to challenge you. She said, I'm proud of you, but I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to come back to Lower Town and like help out, help out the kids, help out the families, do something for this community because they need people like you. And I was 13 at the time. Right? You tell that to a 13-year-old and I'm like, bah! Okay, help out. You know, I was like, uh, I'm busy. You know, I got other things. I was playing Call of Duty. I was watching Dragon Ball Z. You know, like, you know, <laughs> I was, I was still play, playing basketball, trying to make it to the NBA. The Raptors run. You know, I was, I was, that was supposed to be my Raptors run. You know, um, and uh, and then every 13 year old boy's main priority, girls, right? So like, you know, I <laughs> had other things. So when Mo called me in grade 12 and he said, "Do you remember the challenge our principal gave us?" He recalled that memory, and I said, "Yeah." And he said, "What have you done about it?" And I'd, I'd been a little more involved in high school. You know, I a recycling club there too. I was like volunteering for a Relay for Life committee thing. I, you know, I was a little more involved. And I said, Mo, I, I'm more involved. I'm doing my 40 hours of volunteer work. You know, and here in Ontario, obviously, we have to do that. And he said, Fad, I have an idea. He said, I want to start a, a day camp, a camp, like a March break camp for the kids out of York Street Public School. And I remember just being stunned. I'm like, yo, what? You want to do what? He says, I want to start a, a camp. I'm like, like kids, like pe- parents give us their kids and uh, we do this camp. He said, yeah, yeah, I want to I start a camp. I'm like, you're crazy. Like, no, first of all, what parent in their right mind is going to give two 17-year-old brown guys their kids? Like, you know, I'm like, nobody's going to give me their kids. I wouldn't trust them with their kids. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't trust me with their kids. And and we had a long conversation about it. But on that day, Mo said something very powerful to me. He said, Fad, I want to give those kids an opportunity that we never got. Mm. And to me, that was powerful. Right, to me, that is something each and every one of us can use as a lens to look at how we can better our community. Something that you wish you had. Mm. Something, an opportunity that you never got that you could give to someone else. And a lot of us can reflect and be like, oh man, when I was in high school, I wish there was this. When I was in elementary school, I wish there was this. When I first came to Canada, I wish there was this. Right? So we decided to embark on trying to do this camp. <laughs> Two 17-year-olds trying to run a camp. We had no idea what we were doing. I remember we, we made our first poster, Deepak. We made our first poster on Microsoft Paint. We put it together a schedule. We were like, we'll play dodgeball. We'll do coloring contests. We'll have grilled cheese. We started debating whether the grilled cheese should be with ketchup or without ketchup. You know? <laughs> The important details. The important, the important details. We had to, we had to sign a, 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 lease, a lease for the school to use the school, a rental agreement, a community use of schools, what it was called. You had to be 18 to sign it. <laughs> you know, uh, we were 17. So I forged my dad's signature, of course. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're good. <laughs> you know, we're good. <laughs> and uh, I remember the day before camp was starting, 
one of my, I was calling a bunch of friends to say, Hey, I need you to come help volunteer. And, uh, we had no idea what we were doing. Uh, we had got a bunch of friends. They were all, we were all standing in front of the school right before the camp was happening. And it was like me and, and Mo and, and 12 different friends just like standing in front of the school. We were like the Avengers, just kind of like, just, we are here to receive your children. Yeah. And I remember the first parent that came by, the first parent came by. And we were excited. We're like, oh my God, oh my God, look, someone's coming. You know, and, and we weren't sure if kids were going to come. We didn't even have a proper registration day. Like it was just kind of handing out flyers. And uh, the first mom came by and, and she said, thank you. She said, I'm a single mother and uh, I have no other family here to take care of uh, my child. It's March break and I have to work all week. And my kid's seven years old and I was going to leave him at home alone. So thank you. And I think that moment was one of my next inflection points in my life. You know, a lot of times when we come to this country, you know, we think we're in search of community. We're searching for it. We try and create it in small pockets. I grew up in a boiler room in a three-bedroom house. We don't think we have much to give to the world. I think in that moment, you realize that no matter how little you have to give, anybody can actually create community. Damn. It's not for us to search for it. It's for us to create it. I think that was, that was a big moment for me. And I always pull it back to high school. I know it's a funny high school story and, you know, but, but it, it was a shift for me because it's all up to us to create community, to get people to make them feel like they belong and to give them opportunities, no matter how little we have. And I think I learned in that moment, it was like that, that mother was twice my age. And, it, you know, in that moment, I felt like, wow, it didn't matter how old I was. I helped someone else. Didn't matter that, you know, I was just this kid. Because a lot of us always see ourselves as just this kid. And, and the reason for it is actually our, our identity forms around the age of puberty. At the age of 13, 14, majority of your identity forms. And you can, you know, spend the rest of life unpacking it and repacking it. But when you think of yourself, you always think of yourself as the kid, the kid, the 13, 14 year old self, right? Mm -hmm. And as long as we see ourselves sometimes as the kid, we don't see those next steps. So, you know, that camp really, and that experience really projected me. So I kind of fast forward just a bit, you know, went into university and continued working on that camp. And uh, we ran that camp for five years while we were in university. We raised over $40,000. We helped over 250 families in that community just by put it, getting a bunch of friends together, making a poster of Microsoft Paint and, and renting out a school. It was a simple thing that we could have done, but it was phenomenal. And my university journey was then always around this idea of creating community and building community in different areas. And I ended up running as president of the student union at Carleton. And that was a, an amazing two years where I was president of CUSA and learning to create community there and learning to create leaders there. And, you know, the journey goes on from there. So you could say that, that that first camp, that first decision to take your principal's words to heart and act on it was the catalyzing moment for all the things that then came. And that was kind of your, I guess I could say your first aha where you were like, oh, okay, so I think I, think I could, we could actually have impact out here even though we don't mm -hmm. have that much ourselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, that's powerful mm -hmm. man and then so mm -hmm. when you know you always were kind of involved in things kind of just for fun at first but yeah. then in in university I, th I feel like you probably started to take it a little bit more seriously and then yeah. 
not only was, you know, your involvement in these things just a self-serving, like, this is going to look good on my resume. Or, mm. yeah, you know what, this is, this is just a good thing to do because it sounds good. No, like, mm. you were actually involved in these things because you knew that you could have an impact on people's lives. Yeah, yeah very yeah. much so, very much so. Yeah, yeah, and it, so it, what it were, was a big shift. What were some of the biggest, um, you know, takeaways from being involved in, in things in university like KUSA and, and you mentioned other groups as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you know, I, so I had a, we were, we were laughing at our degrees earlier before we got on, on this recording, right? We, I got a political science and economics degree, you know, and it's wonderful. I loved it. And, and you know, I'd say my, my, my journey in building community was around this journey of creating impact. How can we create impact and how can we create community? And I say it started off as a youth worker, right? My time at the Boys and Girls Club. And the idea as a youth worker was, you know, can you impact one child at a time? Right. And that was it. it was like, okay. Amazing. One child at a time. And that was our time with the camp it was like, okay, if we can help one kid at a time, we're changing the world. Then we started fundraising money for our camp, but we also, you know, university started fundraising money for different initiatives. And this was part of it. Started fundraising money for youth Ottawa or child and youth friendly Ottawa is what it used to be founded by the late max keeping. We started raising money for the boys and girls clubs. We started raising money for children's wish foundation. We realized we were really good at raising money because we were these young people who had these ideas and you know, we could create different events and different things to raise money. And we realized we could have an impact, not just help one kid at a time, but help raise money to help all of these people who are working to have this impact. So it shifted from being a frontline service worker to can we raise money to then have a larger impact. Then my time at university, you know, I really wanted to study. I, I debated studying social work and I ended up choosing political science and economics because I, as I spent more and more times fundraising and with charity, I realized that there's a systemic issue to a lot of the issue to a lot of the problems we have in our society. There's, it's a systems problem. It's a design problem. It's not just a money problem. So can I study the politics and the systems and the economy and how it affects our communities and how we can do that? So I started studying that. And what's interesting is, is during my time at university, I got super involved in fundraising and I was doing all this fundraising work. And I remember in like second year and third year, I was approached by a friend who was starting the entrepreneurship club. Mm. And I had been involved in a lot of business modeling and a lot of entrepreneurial activities, but from a nonprofit perspective, I was there with when the impact hub was first starting. I knew Vinod really well. We did some work together. We created the first edi uh, edition of our program called the future community builders. We were all about social innovation. How can we build social innovators and social entrepreneurs? And, you know, that was my focus. And, 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 and my buddy who was starting the entrepreneurship club said, Fred, you have a lot of skill. Can, can you help me with this? So we built out the club and we built out a model for events and getting different people involved. And then a year later, um, I said, you know what, we can, we can pump this up. We can make this a lot more. How do we help entrepreneurs across the entire university develop their ideas, whether it's social impact, whether it's business? Because I started to realize that through industry and through entrepreneurship, we could have greater impact. So we can go from youth worker to fundraiser, fundraiser to politics and economics and systems. But if we use entrepreneurship and we use industry to help push politics and economics a certain way, then perhaps we can have more of an impact. And that was my journey. And so we actually ended up founding the Hatch Entrepreneurship Center that runs at Carleton. I founded that during my, I think, third or fourth year at university. And we've had over 100 um, cohorts of students 
take their you know their start their projects from idea to startup and launch projects launch startups um you know mallory from from lvd was actually one of our uh, first hatch uh, cohorts um you know uh cole uh cole uh, what's Cole's last name? Uh, 12 Barrels. He did 12 Barrels, uh, which was a, a, quite a success. Also, uh, Melissa Vong, who had her Airbnb stuff here in Ottawa. And we, quite a few entrepreneurs from Carleton came out of our Hatch program that we founded, which was based on a simple principle. If you get, you create a community of on, student entrepreneurs, you provide them some knowledge, you provide them some funding, and you provide them mentors that can help guide them. It'll spark enough to get them to the next stages. We won't have to do it all, but to get them to the next stages. So my time doing the entrepreneurial hatch center and the fundraising really propelled me into leadership roles at my Carlton community. And, and I got, I got pushed by a few different people to say, fine, I think you'd be phenomenal to run for uh, Carlton University Student Association. And uh, I kind of sought out the opportunity and, and talked to a few people about it. And, and in my final years, I don't say final years because uh, I was president of CUSA in my fifth year and sixth year. So I did a six year undergrad, you know, I said, my two additional years in my undergrad. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't get enough. Well, I say those two years as, as president of the union were far more beneficial than any part of my degree. Creating Hatch was far more beneficial from a learning perspective, you know, and forget from a credential perspective, forget the resume building, forget the network from a learning perspective. Mm. My time building the camp, my time building the Hatch Entrepreneurship Center and being president of the student union taught me far more about how to be an entrepreneur, how to be a successful employee, how to run a good company, all of that way more than any class any test or any degree could have ever taught me what you just said is so powerful and i can relate to it not because i've done anywhere near the same level of community building and engagement that you have and the impact that you've made but mm -hmm. when i when i was in university as well and you know to me, the, the classroom part was not what I was excited to go to school about. But no. I, always, I always made sure to get as involved as possible in different clubs and, mm -hmm. and programs as well. So uh, you definitely know about Enactus, right? Yes, of so, course. So I was involved in Enactus at Ottawa U. And that experience for me being able to, you know, help make actual social change and, and be surrounded by social entrepreneurs doing all these different projects and actually doing something tangible with mm. the skills that they're learning in school and, and beyond it, it really fired me up so much and showed me the possibilities that, Hey, I, I don't, I try not to speak negative about my school experience because I got so much more out of that and joining various other clubs and, yeah. and meeting people like, like people like you very much like mm -hmm. you who would lead and, and actually be teaching themselves entrepreneurship by becoming entrepreneurs, by mm -hmm. actually doing these things. Mm -hmm. It had such an impact in who I am today and the people that I, uh, th that I get inspiration from in my own pursuits. So, yeah. you know, I think, I think it's very important while you're in university, and that's not to say you have to be a social entrepreneur, but mm -hmm. it's very important when you're in university to venture outside of just the classroom and, yeah. and take 
take those uncomfortable little steps into doing things that are going to make you feel a little bit weird. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure when you wrote your first grant proposal, you had no idea what you were doing. <laughs> I had no sure, idea. I'm sure the first time, you know, you ran, you ran, um, you know, hatch or, you know, you were bringing in entrepreneurs who, uh, who had a, some vision or idea. You didn't actually know how to build a million dollar a month <laughs> brand for these people. Like, yeah, you, but you were able to provide them with the, with the tools so that you could not just give a man a fish, but teach a man a fish. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that's, that's very powerful, man. I love this story so far. I be, I'm, I'm just writing a million notes right now. <laughs> I'm so fired up. Let's, let's, let's talk about then kind of after university now, you know, mm-hmm. the six years are up, man. And it's like, look, I, I can't, I can't extend this anymore. What's next. Yeah. Did you ever work a normal, a normal job per se? You know, the, I say the, the, the normal jobs I had were throughout high school and university in the sense that uh, I, I worked as a youth worker and then I worked uh, in leadership development So for high school students. So I, I ran leadership and training programs all throughout university and, and uh, even some parts of late high school um, around uh, for elementary schools and all that. So, you know, those were my normal jobs. And then after university was, was that moment. It was, okay, well, what's next? You know, and, and you know, I remember... I remember doing a number of interviews because after university, you know, you're a recent grad, you're put into this bucket of recent grads and I was doing a bunch of interviews. So I did interviews with Shopify. I did interviews with Ascent. I did interviews with a few government. Uh, I did interviews with some parliamentarians, right? It was, it was, you know, I was lucky in the sense that I had enough experience and enough of a network that, you know, opportunities were there. I had quite a few people who say, yeah, hey, come work for us or come do this. And it was interesting. Uh, I had an issue with it. And I remember talking to my mentor with it because I had been offered a number of jobs and I hadn't taken any yet. I was kind of playing to see what I, what I could get or what I, you know, what I wanted because I, I, was, I was convinced that it wasn't what I wanted, but there was something off with it. And my issue was that I, w- I felt I was being pigeonholed into this, this grouping of um, recent grads and inexperienced, Right. And you need an entry level job, an inexperienced job so that you can build experience. I'm like, but when I look back, I had a lot of experience. So why do I feel I'm not, that's not being recognized? And, and a mentor of mine said something very interesting. He said, Fad, you know, whatever entry jo- level job you take, if you're going to keep working, you're going to keep the creative intellect that you have and you keep pushing and pursuing and working hard and going above and beyond, you'll raise, you'll rise through it. No problem. He says, but if you feel that people aren't valuing your current what you can bring to the to the table then maybe you need to go create something on your own because you can only value what you can bring to the table and so this idea of entrepreneurship always been part of it and, and i think it hit me there was that nobody is going to truly value what i can bring to the table unless i go out there and prove it without mm-hmm. needing a job you know and, and even then will people ever value what i know i can bring i said i don't know I, so i i actually ended up um, in that summer, starting uh, a project that I had already started during my time at university, and it was called Frank is a Phone, which was uh, our Frank Technologies company. Frank is a Phone was a project. It was this mobile phone. You know, have you heard of blue phones currently? Blue phones? They're these yeah, cheap, I have actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're these cheap Chinese phones, essentially, yeah. that you, know, you can use here in, in, in the Canadian market, and they're inexpensive. We essentially wanted to create another version of the blue phone 
but have better marketing around it. Because if you use the blue phone, you knew that it was, it was a bit of a shitty product, but it also was poorly marketed and it felt like a cheap Chinese phone. We felt that we could take a similar model and we did a ton of market research to look at phones. And you know, our prediction was that phones were becoming good enough that people were willing to pay for less expensive phones that were still good. So we started, me and my friend Mo, a different Mo this time, <laughs> different Mo, um, started this project called Frank is a Phone. We were going to bring this mobile phone technology. But at the same time as I'm doing this, I'm like, okay, I still need an income coming in because I'm spending months working at this. And so I ended up working for a startup called Change Jar. And, I, I, and when, I, when I applied, I applied for a full-time position. I applied with them and we went through the whole interview process. They offered me the job. And then when they offered me the job, I said, can I do it part-time? <laughs> I don't think they were happy with me then, but what I did was I showed them my value. I showed them that I, Hey, you want me, you want my skill set, and you want what I can provide you. I can't do it for you full time because I want to work on my, my project. So can I work part time? And they agreed to work part time. And so I, what I realized here was a big moment. I realized the leverage you have when people choose you, when you're interviewing and someone says, I want you, suddenly you have leverage. Suddenly you can ask for things because they, in, in, a, in a hot talent market, in a hot labor market that, w- that we were in, and now because of the current COVID crisis, we're going to be in more of a lagging labor market. But in the hot market, you're able to have more leverage. You're able to negotiate and say, well, I want this or I don't want that or I want this job because people want you. When someone's hiring, they also want the best talent. So just as much as you're looking for a job, they're looking for someone who's good enough. So I, I asked for it to be part-time and negotiated with them. And, 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 and I took it as a contract and I took it as a consultant, essentially a business development consultant to help change jar enter, um, university markets, which is what they wanted. And so I, my marketing skills, my business development skills, and my, my knowledge of student unions really helped in getting this contract. So I got this contract, I'm doing work with change jar, and then I'm also building out this phone. And we built out this phone and we were on it for uh, you know, quite a few months and we we're running a, a crowdfunding campaign to see if we can raise a certain amount of money, pre-sell the phone, do all this stuff. And, and the Frank is a phone brand is a fun brand. So it's like this kudo cheeky brand. Our tagline was fuck the big guys. So, you know, and our tagline was fuck the big guys. And then on every phone, it said, it's just a fucking phone. And our, our advertising was, it's just a fucking phone. You can ignore your mother on this phone too. You know, you can, you can take a picture of your food for Instagram on this phone too. You know, it was this whole, you know, fun marketing play. Mm-hmm. We worked on that project for maybe, you know, total about a year, a year okay. and a bit. And on our crowdfunding campaign launched, we raised about $70,000, which was phenomenal. We wow. sold about 350 phones. We had this amazing kind of play to it. The marketing, we got 13 different news outlets pick up our story we were on cbc all you know we were on different tech news it was it was pretty phenomenal but at the same time it became a little bit disastrous it became disastrous because certain people i'd say in in either reddit communities or different communities had an issue with the fact that the phone used an existing oem it used an existing case that we got from china versus it being a completely uh, proprietary yeah, yeah. yeah and we couldn't afford a design from scratch phone because it would have cost us a hundred grand just to get a full mold done and that whole point of being able to afford it is sell an, an expensive phone and it was 180 us so it was about 250 canadian was the phone retailing for and so you know to be able to do that we had to keep costs extremely low we were direct to consumer all that stuff so we had a few issues there things popped up 
And then we had a few issues with the manufacturer. Then our crowdfunding platform had a few issues in regards to patents and whether, you know, what qualified, what didn't qualify and different things. At the end of it, halfway through the crowdfunding campaign, um, the whole thing gets shut down. Now, here's the difficult part. I had put every dollar I had into that project. I personally put all the savings I had during university. I paid my, I paid my way through university. My parents couldn't pay anything, but my two years as president of student union, you got paid and I was really good with my money. So I put money away and I had quite a bit of savings. I dumped all my savings into this project. I pulled out different lines of credit for this project. I, I really went all in to make this phone work. And I was about twenty to $23,000 in debt when it all came crashing down. And it all came crashing down and it was a little bit of a fiery mess because it came crashing down and then all these news reporters wanted to now know why it came crashing down. What happened? Why did Indiegogo cancel that? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? And so not only did your project just fail, it was going to fail publicly because mm. everyone's watching it. And that was tough. Yeah. It's one, it's one thing I think to fail. It's another to fail publicly. Yeah. Where like friends, friends of friends knew what was happening. You know, everyone that I spoke to had read an article, had seen it, had talked about, it. you know, people, you know, and, 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 you know, this wasn't my first failure uh, during my time at, at Carleton University student, the student association, you know, I, I was laughing. We re- we released a music video. It's called the I'm going to vote video. You can check it out on YouTube later. And it was this idea of getting people to, to come out and vote and it was filled with swearing and it was rapping and it was just a fun thing, but people, some people hated it and it got, it got over 60,000 views on YouTube. And it was another public fail. This was my second or third, I would say enormously public fail. And man, it hurt. It hurt because, you know, you've just helped so many entrepreneurs. You, you, you were, I was very confident in this project. I really thought we had a chance. I really thought we were going to break through. People loved the attitude, the marketing, the, the positioning, and, and now everything came crashing down. And not just that, I had not a penny. And my lifeline was the fact that I kept a part-time job with this company. So I kept a part-time job with Change Jar, and, and I continued to do business development work. Now, during this entire time, which I, I haven't mentioned, during my time at university, after we started the camp two years in, I had been asked to speak at different high schools. Different, my old high school teacher had contacted me and said, hey, Fahad, I'd love for you to come speak to our grade 12 class about the project that you were doing. I said, okay, cool, yeah, I, I could do that. I remember going in. And then another teacher contacted me and said, Fahad, can you come to our class? And so I spoke to my high school a few times. And then a year later, I was asked by the Craig Kielberger brothers during oh, yeah. Wee Day yeah. to, to speak at Wee Day. And to talk about what we're doing with the camp. And I got super excited and they said, but uh, we're doing this as a panel. They're like, there's going to be three people there. And we're going to ask you questions and do that. I was like, sweet. Like, I'm totally excited. Two weeks out before the event, they said, the other people on the panel just canceled. So you have two minutes on stage by yourself. I'm like, I don't know why anyone would cancel. This opportunity is cool. There's 16,000 like grade eight, grade nine, 10 students. 16,000 of them. And now you got two minutes. I'm like, what do you mean two minutes? What do you say in two minutes? Man, how long we've been talking? What do you say in two minutes? I, <laughs> I no <laughs> Hi, my name's Vlad. Thanks yeah. for being here. Like, I, you know? That's a weird amount of and, time. 
and and I and I and I spoke about the camp. Now I'm I'm sharing the story because I spoke about the camp then, and I got a call from my older brother's teacher, one of his older teachers, and said, "Fad, I'd love for you to come speak to our entire school." And I said, "Oh, okay, cool, that'd be awesome." And then he said, "How much do you charge?" And I remember laughing on the phone, like, "What? How much do I charge? What do you mean? I get paid uh, 11, uh, I think it was like uh, nine dollars and fifty cents an hour minimum wage." <laughs> And uh, you want me to speak for an hour and probably take me an hour or two to prep. So you want to pay me like 25 bucks? Like, you know, like, I, I, I don't know any better. Like, you right, know right, I, right. Yeah, I, he said, no, 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 go think about it and let me know. I remember calling a few friends and then going back to him and I was like, man, I really don't know. Like, I, just whatever you want, tell me. And he said, well, um, I paid the last speaker $750. Are you cool with that? Yeah, I'm cool with that. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah, for sure. I remember sitting there with my friend calculating how much I'm going to get paid per minute, you know, because I'm, I'm speaking for an hour. Like, oh, my God. Ballin. <laughs> you know, I, I share that because in university, I started speaking to high school. I started being a, a youth speaker, speaking on leadership, speaking on building community. And I did about 10 to 15 schools every year in my university time. Now, when my Frank is a phone project plummeted, and crashed and I had no money and I had credit card debt. I was getting a bit of money from this part-time job, but at the same time, I had been getting a few calls from schools and I was ignoring them because I was busy with this project. And I said, okay, you know what? I'm gonna go back to speaking to some of these schools and just see if I can get like 250 bucks here, 500 bucks here, 700, just, I just something to keep me going. Cause like I got a story to tell and people clearly love the story I'm sharing about the camp and how we, how we overcame the community. But, you know, okay, sure, I'll do this. So here I am working at Change Jar. I start speaking more at these high schools. And the speaking coach that I had from like years ago contacts me and, and says, um, hey, I heard you're doing some of this business development work. I want you to come to one of my sessions, one of my speaking sessions. I want you to just come, come to it again, refresh some of the skill stuff. I might have an opportunity for you. And I said, okay, cool. So I went to one of his sessions and, and, and it was, it was good refresher and he's a phenomenal speaking coach. His name is Steve Lowell. And, and I really learned with them. And, uh, and at the end of the session, he said, you know, I want to bring you on to help us with business development. So I'm growing my business and I need someone to do a business development contract. And I said, you know what? No problem. I'm doing one contract with change jar and I'll do another contract with you and I'll have both these contracts and I'll do my speaking. And that way I'll few, wear a few different hats, but maybe I'll get out of this debt situation. He said, okay, but, uh, uh, how do you want to do this? And so we negotiated quite a bit and I ended up actually taking on based on my confidence. I take, I ended up taking on a full commission model. I said, you know what? I'll work completely on commission. Cause I was convinced because we had these large contracts that I could make a ton more money on commission working with him. My, I ended my change our contract after about six or seven months with the company. The company wasn't doing too well. There was issues with its product, with its value proposition and, and, and uh, you know, its positioning and it was running out of cash flow. And I remember speaking to the uh, CEO and I said, you know, this is the changes I think we need to see. But I ended that contract. I continued speaking and then I worked, I was working with this business with SNJ training solutions with this business development for training. And I did that for about a year. I did it for about a year. And I made maybe $5,000. Wow. <laughs> we had built, I built everything. I built the website. I built the communications. I built social media. I built like, I, I did all the business development. I reached out to all the salespeople. I built the marketing funnels. I did everything. And at the end of that year, he said, this really isn't working for me. I'm just going to cancel this contract. 
It was a bit of a. He said that, or you said yeah, that? He said that. What? <laughs> what? Wait, wait, like that. I know. What part? Try, try to try to make that make sense for me. You got paid five make it, racks I'm, for doing all that, and he was like, "I ain't working out." Yeah, because he wasn't happy that we weren't getting any sales. The reality was, he was a phenomenal trainer, and to this day, a phenomenal trainer. To this day, a mentor of mine. But I think he needed something different for his business development. He needed someone to help a little more actually run certain parts of the business and business mm, manager and all got that. Got it. And it was a blessing in disguise because it was a slap to the face. And here, here's the issue. Not only is it a slap to the face, at this point, I was 35 grand in debt. At this point, I spent another year trying to build another business, right? Because I was the commissioner, so I had part ownership, part of it, so I'll build this business out together. So here I am. I spent another year building another business, having only a little bit of income from my speaking, but spending all my time building this training business. And I'm out again. And this was two failures within a span of two years with 35 grand of debt on my back. And not just any debt, man. Fucking credit card debt mm. was like... And the credit card debt at 35 grand... And at 21% interest rate, some, day, some months you're only paying off the interest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like some months you're just paying out just the top off. I, I, it, was, it, was a, it was a tough moment and, and I personally was ready to kind of, I was like, all right, I'm going to go get a full-time job. I, which is like what I was going to ask you next. Like at, at what point, you know, do you start to think, okay, well, you know, maybe this, maybe this entrepreneurship, stuff is that was it i was like i was like forget it so i reapplied to shopify reapplied to all the places that i was considering and sent out my resume and started having conversations started having interviews and was making moves and i applied for one job um and uh i applied all the way through did all the interviews and everything and then they declined, they, they didn't offer it to me, which was, I was, yeah, I was like, oh, wow. Like, I, I really thought I was going to get that. It was a nice community job. I was like, okay, that's fine. I got offered another parliamentary job. I didn't want to take a parliament job, even though I was super involved in politics, all that stuff. I was like, I don't want to end up in that world. It's not for me. After doing two years as senior president, it was too much. I, I almost took a job. And the day before I almost took that job, a friend of mine sent me um, a contract the University of Ottawa. So the University of Ottawa is looking for someone to help uh, develop courses that include leadership development and social innovation. And uh, I think this is up your alley. I was like, yeah, this is, uh, I do this. It's like I've done this with high schools. Like I know some of this stuff. I was like, you know what? Got this. And what I did is I put my consultant hat on. Instead of looking at this as a job, because they were looking for a part-time job. Instead of looking at this as a job, I was like, I'm going to treat this as a consulting gig. Because it had a nice number to it. And I was like, I can, I, can, I can use this as a base to then grow from. So I put all my full-time job applying on the side. And I focused on this one. And here's what I did. I t- and I tell every recent grad that's listening to this, this is the trick to get a job. Are you right? Like, this is literally the hack. Okay? Number one, find the person who's hiring. So I found the person who was hiring. And I emailed them. And I said, hey, can we go for coffee? I'm, not sh- I, I'm interested in your job. I'm just not sure it's the right fit for me. And I'd like to learn more. 
See, that positioning, I'm not sure it's the right fit for me. I'd like to learn more. Gave me a coffee date. Now, listen, I just got a coffee date before anyone got an interview or anyone submitted their resume. You just skip the resume part into basically your first interview. So I got a coffee date. I meet with the person and I just, I asked them so many questions. Oh, what are you trying to accomplish with the University of Ottawa program? What is the goal of this program? What are you looking for? Who are you looking for? What kind of skills are you looking for? And I ask all these questions and I take a ton of notes. So you're coming, you're coming at them with a leadership frame. I'm coming at them with a leadership frame and I'm coming at them with, I also built an entrepreneurship center for Carleton university. So I have this entrepreneurship piece. I've done social innovation from all the camps and community building I've done. And I've done leadership development through high schools and I am a speaker. So I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm going to combine all this and I'm going to find an angle here that works well for them. So I, I ask all these questions and then I go back and they ask people to apply and you send a resume, you send a cover letter. I didn't send a cover letter. I sent a 12 page consultants report on what I could do for their program based on all the notes I took during that coffee interview. Wow. Because I took that coffee into coffee day, coffee, you know, whatever time with that, with, with the person hiring, I had so much more information about the program. So I wrote this 12 page consultants report. And when I went into the interview, they were mesmerized by what I was able to bring. And now here's, here's the funny part. Okay. I didn't know the interview. Half the interview was supposed to be in French. Deepak. <laughs> <laughs> Man here speaks basic French. I, I was like, I was shocked. I was shocked. I was like, I told him right then and there. I'm like, I'm going to try, but like, you know, it's okay. I didn't know. So if you want to ask <laughs> me to leave right difficult. now, it's cool. For more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like if you're going to ask me to dip right now, I'm good. Like, it's all good. So in my head, I wrote it off. I wrote off that interview. I tried. I answered a few questions and, and they were happy that I was trying. And then I answered the English questions above and beyond. A month later, I got a call and they said, you were our best candidate. and. Uh, we love the, the report that you gave us and we want you to run the program. And that was getting my head just above water. I had an income. I knew I was going to make X amount over the next year from this one gig. And then I knew I could make X amount from speaking. And I knew that in that one year, if I was disciplined with my finances, I could pay off my debt. That was my goal. Pay off my debt, get me back to zero so that I don't feel pressured. When we're needing for money, we feel pressured. We take any gig. And I was doing random jobs. I was, man, at one point, I was, I, was on, I was on different job websites looking. I'll teach English overseas for like Chinese kids online. Like I, I'll be a product promoter. I was like anything. I just needed an income. But I didn't want an income that was full-time that was going to stop me. I, I don't know why, but I was averse to this idea of full-time. Because as soon as I go full-time, I wasn't going to have time to do something else. I wanted something part-time. And that was my struggle. Mm. But I found this beautiful gig. Part-time that can get me out. And for a lot of entrepreneurs right now who are full-time that are listening to this, here's like the, the idea of what you have to think about your time is the same way you have to think about like an investment portfolio. You need balanced risk. You need to balance your risk. If you're going to go full in on entrepreneurship, go live at home and balance your risk. Reduce your cost and balance your risk, right? You can't take high risk here and high risk here. You have to lower risk certain areas. And then if you're working full-time and you're like, how do I get to becoming fully entrepreneurial, you don't just make the jump. A lot of people say like, dive all in, do it all. No, no, no. Start doing it as a side hustle. Then move your job to part-time. Then move, you know, like slowly edge your way into doing it fully. Now that start at the University of Ottawa was a start of looking at educational reform. I've been with the university for about two years now. 
to do that. And so we were, we were started redesigning academic courses to include leadership development and, um, and entrepreneurship, social innovation. And so we've redesigned over 16 courses at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Arts, Social Sciences. And so I work with these professors on redesigning their pedagogy, redesigning how we do learning, to look at complex problem solving as a number one skill, to use community partners as part of the, our education system. So it's experiential learning. So what we do is we bring in a community partner that has a problem that is very closely attached to what the course is teaching. So I'll give you an example. We have a geography class, a geomatics class. So the geomatics class has to do mapping. So we got Shepherds of Good Hope, a homeless shelter, to work with us so that we can heat map the city and cold map the city to see where there's heat pockets and cold pockets, and then to lay over a map of where we've seen homeless deaths due to heat and cold, to see if there are certain pockets in the city that cause greater amount of deaths. Oh. Yeah. And the students are working on this and the students are providing this data to the city and providing it to the community shelters. And so we started to design these programs, which is phenomenal. So at the same time as I'm designing these programs, my speaking at high schools and universities is just, just growing immensely because I'm, I'm, people are loving my story. People are loving the personality. People are loving the show, the entire experience. So my speaking is growing. My university of Ottawa stuff is growing. And then because I've worked for so many startups, that same year, a bunch of startups, one of my good friends contacted me and said, Fahad, I know you do this leadership development stuff for like high school students, university students. And I know you're redesigning courses. I got a bunch of young managers who don't really know how to manage a team. And they're working for my startup. They're phenomenal designers. They're phenomenal marketers. They're phenomenal product people. They don't know how to manage a team. Do you think you can come and run some workshops for us? Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I've been doing that actually. They're just, you know, just at a different stage. Yeah. And I would say that next step where where the interjection of building community through developing leaders in high schools educating them through university uh, educate like university experiential learning through our ventures program at the university of ottawa and this workshops that we run for startups led to the birth of the company that i have now which is called unicorn labs and so at Unicorn Labs, we help develop young leaders. We focus on startups, but we develop their soft skills, their emotional skills. We develop their technical skills and we develop them so that they can 10X their teams and 10X their companies. And, and we call, we, are, we, we, we have our own pedagogy and we have our own research around, and around our leadership and what makes phenomenal startup leaders. And we call them unicorn leaders, leaders who can impact a billion people, leaders who can actually develop a startup that will reach a billion people. Powerful, man. That's so powerful. I love this whole story and how everything is built up onto each other. Yeah. None of these, none of these events, good or bad, are, are happened in isolation. Mm -hmm. It's not like one of these uh, events in your life just happened on its own. It all built up to who you are today and is continuing yeah. to build up to who you are going to be. And yeah. so Oh man, like this is like, I feel like we, you know, we could, we're just scratching the surface. <laughs> we're really just getting started, but we're already over an hour I'm probably talking too much. You know, I'm a storyteller. It's, so. <laughs> it, it's not you, man. It's not you. I love it. I want to continue and let's, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit now, you know, let's shift gears a little bit now about unicorn labs, but even more than that, how are you harmonizing all these things that you're doing currently together um, to build your own business and your own brand? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. So I, I think the, uh, the, the, the core of it all is around building community. Mm. And it ties right back to that search for community that me and my family had. When we go into high schools and I'm, you know, doing the keynote speech for the entire school and I share the story with them, what we encourage the students is to find something in their school that they can improve and they can build community. When we're working with university students and we're developing their leadership capacity, we're bringing in community partners so the students feel that the work they're doing isn't just a paper, but it's actually impacting people. Our definition of leadership is no longer a noun. There's no leader. It's a verb. A leader is an action. Leadership is an action. It is a continuous action. And what it actually is, it is small actions that create a sense of belonging. Leaders who create community. That is it. And when we're working with startups, what we've realized is the most effective startups, the ones that, that are able to actually deal with creative problems and actually deal with immense problem solving are ones that create a strong culture, a strong community and have a strong focus on adaptability and growth. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're doing. And so the story, the search for community that I've had since the beginning, that has made the difference. That has been what has really uh, grown for me and has allowed me to, uh, to, to continue this. And so now the intersection in the company is quite simple. Um, I do a lot of public speaking. So I'm on the road a lot. I'm speaking at high schools. I'm speaking at conferences. Um, I'm doing You're different. Speaking uh, on podcasts. I'm speaking on podcasts. <laughs> I'm doing trainings. I'm doing trainings um, for all these startups. We do week long workshop. We do workshops. We do continuous workshops. We do some one-on-one -on -one coaching with them on how to improve their leadership capacity um, with the university, I'm teaching in a lot of these classes. So I'm there, I'm teaching. So I'm very much delivering. I'm delivering a lot of content. I'm delivering a lot of knowledge. I'm teaching. I'm very much coaching. I'm very much a teacher. And, and, you know, the irony of all this is that my father was a teacher in Kuwait. He became a principal. And right before all of it, you know, became a mess, he worked under the educational minister to reform education in order to develop better soft skills. Mm. And so it really is passing that baton. It really is passing that relay race and, and me continuing that legacy of teaching soft skills and emotional development skills to young people so that they can maximize their potential. They can create community and they can grow. And so, uh, you know, the, the last part that I, I always joke about, and I always love one of the big things that we do that we work with, with, with startups and startups love this is that we host their retreats. We do annual retreats with them. So we take them away to a cottage and we have a bunch of fun times. We also do strategy planning. We do team building, but then my retreats, as all my friends say, is, it's like adult camp. So I'm, I'm still running camp. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just doing it for adults. Now there's I a little bit it. of alcohol. There's a little bit of fun. There's a, yeah. there's, you know, there's team building and, and it really, I think, I think you put it well. It's been a long journey of continuous iteration on similar ideas that has gotten me to this. See, I, I, during this entire COVID crisis, there was a little um, uh, uh, Instagram meme going around and talked about how Newton uh, had a discovery during, Isaac Newton had a discovery during the time when, uh, I think he was at Cambridge, I think it was, or, you know, shut down. When his university shut down for a number of weeks is when his, uh, some of his greatest discoveries came apart. And some people were sitting around thinking, think about what you could be doing in these next two to three weeks during the shutdown. And I totally agree. But I think the one part that people miss 
is that Newton also spent an entire lifetime getting to that point in which then those two or three weeks helped him mm. peak. Right. I think it's this constant iteration. I think entrepreneurship is a skill. And just like shooting a basketball, you have to shoot enough times to get good at shooting it. Yes. It's a skill. It's not a magic pill. It is not a, a constant talent. Iteration. It's not something you're just born with. And, and this is actually... This is actually something I've been reading about in this book mindset that I'm reading right now. And, mm, you know, it, it mm. talks, it talks a lot about this kind of stuff, but it's talking about, you know, and this is actually something that I, you know, when I was growing up, I used to think you're either born a certain way or you're not, but then changing that and re rewiring it to be like, well, no, like I was not good at this thing and I got really good at it. Yeah, through yeah. practice and through repetition That's and through it. actually doing it right that and so it. and so having that growth mindset and this is kind of like you know to wrap it up a little bit this mm. is kind of this is kind of what i my biggest takeaway from everything that you've said is mm. and uh, you know it's about building that community through mm -hmm. growth through a growth yes. mindset through hope and through through i don't know how to eloquently put it but through having that self-awareness to recognize whatever it is you're doing is building towards something, whether you see it right now or not. Sometimes it's important to take that step back and realize, Hey, yeah, this COVID crisis, like I love, I love your, your take on it. Right. Yeah. yeah it really sucks right now. It's uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of people sick and obviously mm -hmm. directly affected from it. And then mm -hmm. a lot of people indirectly affected by it. Mm -hmm. But what are you going to do with this time? When you look back at the COVID crisis and how you reacted to these kinds of things, how yes. are, how, what, what stories are you going to tell your kids about it? Yeah. Well, yeah. are you going to tell them that, you know, this is a time I beat myself up and, you know, only binged Netflix and like, was just upset by everything going on and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. constantly consuming the negativity and scrolling through social media and just being sad about it? Or is it a time that you're taking as an opportunity to try to do things outside of your comfort zone. For me, I would say it's getting on a Zoom call for my podcast. This is yes. something very much out of my comfort zone. But hey, so far it's gone great. <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. No, man, that, that's exactly it. I think everything in life is a skill that we can learn. Yeah. That's, you know, it's a talent that we can develop. Um, and it's just about pushing past that comfort zone, using COVID as an opportunity, using the time that you have away as an opportunity and doubling down, pushing and not getting uncomfortable. And I, I can tell you as a business owner, I'm extremely uncomfortable on, on, you know, what these next couple months are going to look like, but it's pushing me to think beyond my, my basic patterns. And, uh, you know, I, it's, it's powerful. Brother, we could chat here for hours and keep going. I'm gonna wrap. I'm gonna wrap it up with one final question before I get into our lightning round to finish off the podcast. Awesome. Okay. So this, you know, you have this this quote, and I was, uh, you know, I heard it in one of your videos, and I'm not sure if it's mm -hmm. yours or if it's, you know, but you talk about, you know, how are we gonna solve tomorrow's problems if we're stuck using yesterday's principles, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are three principles that make you who you are? Wow. That's, uh, that's, that, that's, that's good. That's good. I think, I think um, the, num the number one principle is I begin with relentlessly high standards. And that doesn't mean 
that I only put work out that's perfect. I mean, I hold myself to high standards in every part of my life and how I show up and how I deal with relationships and how I do my work and how I have iterative design. I begin with relentlessly high standards. That's number one. Number two is I, I feed my insatiable curiosity. Man, learn, learn, learn. Whenever, if curiosity hits you and you're like, oh, I'm curious about something, go for it right then. Right. Don't, say, don't, don't bookmark it and say, I'll get back to it. No, no, no. In that moment, feed your curiosity mm. because there is nothing more powerful than that curious method, that learning opportunity that happens right in that moment. That's how we all started off, right? Mm. We were all mm. kids in the classroom who raised our hands and asked a billion dumb questions, right? But that's yes. how we learned. And then yeah. for some reason, you know, you get to university and you, you, you get intimidated by 300 people in your class and you're no longer that little kid who raises his or her hand. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, exactly. sorry, I'll let you. Finish. No, 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 that's good. And then the third one is always play the long game. Mm. Always play the long game. I think, you know, far too many of us are thinking, oh man, like I, I had all my goals. I was going to win 2020. 2020 was amazing. Man, the people who are winning 2020, were, were, were started in 2010. Hmm. If you're starting now, build to win 2030. Yes. What are you doing to build 2030? To win 2030. That's, That's what it's fire, about. man. That's fire. I love that. You, you fired me up, man. Uh, bro, Fahad, I feel like we could just chat here for hours, man. I do have to wrap this up. We'll do <laughs> Thanks, another man. podcast in the future. You could Definitely. come by the studio and we'll, we'll do love that. that. But uh, right before I let you go, what I do with all my guests is a quick lightning round. Five questions mm -hmm. just to end it off. Uh, just because I never knew how to end podcasts before. I could just talk forever. <laughs> just like you. Um, so question one, what would you tell 17-year-old Fahad? Wow. What would I tell 17-year-old Fahad? Um, uh, wow. What would I tell... I would, I would tell 17-year-old Fad to play the long game. Play the long game. Don't play focus the on these, these short-term wins. Yeah, keep, just keep grinding it out. Play the long game and realize that every experience builds on the next. And it's an iterative design. Your life is an iterative design. What's one aspect of leadership that's always neglected? Um, fluidity. Fluidity. I think I think leaders are needed to lead in different styles in different ways. There's not one style of leadership. There's mm. many styles, and it's our ability just... to yeah, our ability to be fluid between styles for the person that we're leading and who who they need us to be is what's extremely important. I love that you can't just pick up a book on leadership and it be the answer. Mm -hmm. I love mm -hmm. it. What's your favorite restaurant in the Ottawa area? Ooh, Shawarma Palace. <laughs> Shawarma Palace, oh gee. I love it. Can't go wrong with that, brother. What's one lesson your parents taught you that stuck with you forever? Um, one lesson our parents taught me that stuck forever. Um, I think it was just uh, family. Keep them close. Hold them tight. Mm. Keep community close and uh, protect each other because, because that's what's most important. I, th I think it's fair to say that that has stuck with you pretty well. Um, and then last and final question, how do you want to be remembered? Uh, that's a great question. I think uh, I remember as, as a community man, as a person who took care of his family and his friends and the people around him and 
I think that that's, that's really it. That's uh, as a, that's, that's to me the most important part. I love it, brother. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Just remember it's not that deep. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) It's not that deep, bro. Thanks for listening to another episode of the It's Not That Deep podcast. For access to exclusive articles and content, please head over to www.itsnotthatdeeppodcast.com. And to help me grow this thing to the next level, here's what I need you to do. Go ahead and subscribe to my podcast on all platforms, wherever you listen, and share with all your friends and family on all social media. And please leave a rating as well. Remember, it's not that deep.